Hey, hey, welcome to another installment of Too Much to Watch. I'm Sam Papard. On today's show, we'll be diving into episode four of House of the Dragon. I have to say, this show is consistently keeping me invested. I find each episode so far has stood out. I'm connected with the characters. I do have some minor gripes, though. We'll dive into that. In addition to that, I will be tackling a subject that I have not talked about before. That's pretty easy, considering I've only really talked about the Lord of the Rings and the world of Game of Thrones so far on this podcast. So it's high time we dive into something else. That subject is Star Wars. Specifically, how has Disney handled Star Wars? Or I guess I should say, how has Disney handled the acquisition of Lucasfilm so far? We'll dive into that first. Let's take it away. So, Star Wars. I want to rewind way back to the 1970s here with George Lucas founding a production company in San Francisco, California in 1971 called Lucasfilm. Six years later, the very first Star Wars movie would come out in 1977 and thus the birth of a pop culture phenomenon happened. We would get two movies that would follow, one in 1980 and the other, I believe, Return of the Jedi was 1982. Anyway, Star Wars was massive, is still massive. I often talk about monoculture on this podcast. Star Wars, in many ways, is the ultimate monoculture. It's hard to run into someone who doesn't know what Star Wars is at all. And honestly, if you run into someone who has not seen a single Star Wars movie, you'll look at them like, what is wrong with you? Not that that you should give that reaction. It's totally okay if you've never seen a Star Wars movie. Some people don't like sci-fi or it's not really even sci-fi. It's more like fantasy action adventure. But it garners that reaction if you run into someone who has not seen a single Star Wars movie. In fact, I remember I was going on a trip uh, a couple years ago. And a person in the car said, okay, guys. I have something to admit. I've never seen Star Wars. And I've never seen Lord of the Rings. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. That was very brave of you to tell us that. I didn't actually say that. But anyway, you get the idea. Star Wars is so pervasive and so dominant in culture that it's hard for one not to watch a movie at some point in their lives. Since the 1970s and since the completion of the original trilogy, and what I mean by the original trilogy, I mean Return of the Jedi. I'm not talking canonical, chronological order of the Star Wars Skywalker saga story here. Since the conclusion of that, it has not been the smoothest ride for Star Wars. It's fair to say that. George Lucas would take a lot of time after that trilogy, and then eventually we would 
get a prequel trilogy starting in 1999 called the original movie called The Phantom Menace. And this would focus on the origin story, essentially, of Darth Vader. And I think people, for the most part, looked forward to this. But man, oh man, were they in for a disappointment. And I think there maybe some people that liked those prequel movies. I did not. I thought they were pretty boring. They were exposition heavy. And a lot of the acting was just very wooden. And people didn't act like human beings in those movies. That was probably my biggest gripe is people didn't act like human beings. And the movies were so self-serious. And George Lucas, who clearly put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those movies because he wrote and directed all of them. He only directed the first Star Wars and then had two other directors come in for the following two in the, in the 70s and 80s. These movies, he was, the, he was the sole brainchild of these movies. And he got a lot of hate. And I think he probably was quite hurt by that. Because this was his plan all along. And I'm not sure what happened. It's just probably that he had a lot more power and maybe there was just no one in there telling him, yeah, you probably should make some alterations here or just maybe add some moments of levity. We don't have any of that. And that's missing from these movies. And when something takes its... Again, I come back to the idea of uh, House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings here. When something is so self-serious in the world of fantasy or sci-fi, you have got to have people act like human beings and you have got to have at least some moments of levity or just humor just to laugh at how ridiculous all of this is so the prequels didn't turn out well and fans were very upset i think it left a desire for more fans wanted the modern, because one of the best parts about Star Wars was the special effects, which were groundbreaking at the time in the 1970s and 80s. And the special effects in Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith were not the problem with the movie. They looked phenomenal. It's just the plot, the acting, the screenplay, the script, the story arc, the pacing, all of that was relatively problematic in those movies. So I think what fans wanted was a modern Star Wars movie with modern production design and special effects and CGI all wrapped up in an entertaining action-adventure movie that can make you laugh, can make you cry, can make you excited. All of those things, the full gamut of emotions, and also is not caught up in tons and tons and tons of exposition where we just are digesting basically an almanac or an encyclopedia of information about the world of Star Wars. It's okay to take in a lot of information. But when that is the main driver of dialogue, things start to get problematic. So, finally, a deal starts to happen in 2012, and Disney offers to buy Lucasfilm. And they agree on a deal. It's for just over $4 billion, which is a lot of money 
It's roughly what Disney bought Marvel for. Fans are excited. Oh, George Lucas won't be in control of this anymore. Disney will bring in the right talent. I mean, look what they did with Marvel. They have Kevin Feige, who is a genius. The creator of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe they can do a Star Wars Cinematic Universe. And then finally, in 2015, we get a Star Wars movie, Star Wars The Force Awakens. It has the original cast members in it. It has Harrison Ford as Han Solo, Carrie Fisher as Leia. And it has a whole host of new other character of other characters. But it's a continuation of the Skywalker saga. And the movie has a lot of levity. It has really it has good acting. It's a relatively easy to follow story. It doesn't get bogged down in exposition. Daisy Ridley is a star. John Boyega is a star in his own right, too. Oscar Isaac, who's like one of the best working actors out there, is in the movie. It's a great movie. It's long overdue to have a modern, great Star Wars movie. The only problem is, and maybe we were all so excited when we saw that movie that we couldn't have seen this, is movie felt pretty familiar. I mean, there's a rebellion going on. The Empire is starting to, is, has taken over the galaxy. Ultimately, there's some large weapon that can take out, that can do massive destruction that they need to take out in the end. And that's what happens. The movie hits a lot of the same notes as A New Hope. Almost shamelessly so. But we all loved it so much that we didn't really even care. At that point, Disney was in the goodwill of most Star Wars fans. Following The Force Awakens, in 2016, Disney released Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, which was really where the trouble started to set in. Ultimately, this movie would be both a box office success, it made over a billion dollars, and it was a critical success. It got very good marks from critics and fans alike. But it was a troubled production. Just a little background. This is the story that is tells the tale of a ragtag group of rebels who ultimately go on a mission to obtain documented schematics of the Death Star, which in turn would be given to the Rebel Alliance in order to expose the weak point of the Death Star. And spoiler alert, all the rebels die, but they are successful in getting this, in obtaining the schematics and getting it to the Rebel Alliance. A pretty cool idea for a movie, and it, it ultimately was very cool. It introduced a lot of great characters. Uh, it had a lot of great action set pieces. It may very well be, at least in terms of movies, the best movie that Lucasfilm has made under Disney. We'll get back to that. That being said, this production hired Gareth Edwards, who was most famous, he was a young director, he was most famous for directing the live-action Godzilla, which was pretty successful, and he was a super fan, he was really into it, and went about the production, made the movie, and when Disney had watched the rough director's cut of the movie, they were like, oh my gosh, we have to do significant edits and reshoots. And the interesting thing is they did not call back Gareth Edwards to do that. Instead, they brought in veteran writer slash director Tony Gilroy, who was most famous for making, writing the Bourne, Jason Bourne movies. And he brought in and he was kind of like the saving grace of this movie. And they did significant reshoots. 
it's pretty normal for a movie of that size to do reshoots, but the amount of reshoots they did were was unprecedented. And the fact that they brought in a young director who I guess was a bit in over his head a little bit is telling because the Marvel movies have brought in young up and coming directors who are relatively and writers who are relatively inexperienced and have given us successful movies. The, the Rooster, the Russos are good evidence of that. The Russos who, who would start off with Captain America, the winter soldier go on and do civil war, infinity war, the infinity saga, Avengers movies, they would direct as well. This was not successful. And Tony Gilroy would end up finishing the project and the movie would turn out really good, but man, oh man, it was almost, you know, it was kind of like a bit of a buzzer beater. So then we move on to Star Wars The Last Jedi in 2018. And this is where the trouble really, really starts to pick up. Possibly the peak of trouble for Disney. So they bring in Ryan Johnson, who was a bit more of an experienced director, had made the excellent movie Looper, had directed episodes of Breaking Bad. This guy had the experience and he was a writer too. And he made a movie that was the follow-up to The Force Awakens and the continuation of these new characters, but within the realm of the Skywalker saga. And this is where a real divide started to happen. True polarization. We had not seen anything like this before, not only in Star Wars, but just in Hollywood in general, where we have a movie that came out. It had a lot of new things to say. It had a lot of twists that were surprising, to say the least. And it was pretty well received by critics but not really so by fans. And this brought up the whole idea of we often pay attention to Rotten Tomatoes. This is the first time we saw that real dichotomy between the critics' score on Rotten Tomatoes and the fan score. And a lot of that came from what is known as review bombing, where <laughs> there are fans that hold the Star Wars franchise to a level of being sacred. And... If someone has done something with that, that they feel is sacrilege, there are a group of people that will band together and say, I want this thing to fail and find ways to go onto Rotten Tomatoes and just post the most negative reviews possible in order to sink the audience score. And I believe the same thing happened on Metacritic and IMDb. Not only that, there were certain actors in this movie that people did not like and those actors on Instagram got a lot of hate messages and hate DMs and just awful behavior towards them. Not only had Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm turned tumultuous, it had turned ugly. On top of that, Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker, had voiced to the press that he did not like some of the decisions that were being made with the character of Luke Skywalker and famously said, this is not my Luke which even further fueled the flames. Oh man, this was a really tough situation. This is a really bad situation. The movie, while successful, I think it made $1.3 billion, was not nearly as successful commercially as The Force Awakens. And Disney probably ultimately deemed this movie a failure, despite the fact that I actually kind of liked it. There were moments of it that I didn't like, but I 
actually liked it just because Ryan Johnson was clearly taking a big swing here, primarily by killing off the character Snoke early on, which I think a lot of people did not like. But that points to a larger problem in that Disney thought they could acquire Lucasfilm and then just kind of come out with movies every year and make a ton of money. And they're not pointing to an overarching plan. The fact that they didn't have a plan architect is one of the reasons why they have run into so much trouble with making Star Wars movies in the first place. If you're going to hit on the familiar themes of the Skywalker saga, which is something that people hold sacred, you have a tough needle to thread. And that is something that they ultimately did not realize. I am not defending the behavior of the trolls that were review bombing and harassing cast members. That is awful. There is no place for that. I don't really know what to say to people who do engage in that behavior. You don't own this content. If you don't like it, then don't watch it. It's that simple. That being said, a movie, particularly a movie of a continuing franchise, needs to be a big tent picture. So for have, to have Ryan Johnson, who made the swings that he made, probably would have been better off in an, a completely new storyline than in the Skywalker saga, which probably should have just been like fan fiction till the end. It should have just hit on the familiar themes and kind of just should have been a remake of Empire Strikes Back. And I think people ultimately would have been happy with that. They need a Kevin Feige. I don't know if Kathy Kennedy, what her role is exactly. I know she is overseeing Lucasfilm, but they don't have someone who's just in charge of Star Wars, and they need that. The movie Solo, which was an origin story of Han Solo, which also went through directorial trouble. It brought in the guys Lord and Miller, who were involved in making the Lego movie, which was, I thought it was an interesting decision, I mean, Marvel had success with the guys who had directed You, Me, and Dupree, the Owen Wilson comedy. And I'm speaking, of course, about the Russos, who would go on, of course, as I previously said, to direct many Captain America and Avengers movies with great success. <laughs> Lord and Miller were not successful. In fact, they were just taken off of the movie completely mid-production and veteran director Ron Howard was brought in to finish up the movie. Unlike Rogue One, that wasn't enough to save the movie. It was slammed by critics and fans alike and did not do well at the box office. Although I will note here, the movie was not nearly as bad as I expected. And by the end, I have to say, I was kind of into it. And they clearly set the movie up for a sequel. And I was disappointed to know that this movie will probably not get a sequel. And I'm into it. I'd be down for a follow-up. On to, finally, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, which is the final chapter in the final movie in the Skywalker saga. And the final movie of Disney's trilogy. They brought back J.J. Abrams to write and direct this movie as kind of almost like a course correction. When I saw the trailer for this, I remember at the end of the trailer, you hear the Emperor laughing as in Emperor Palpatine. And I was like, really? That's where they're going with this? They're bringing in a big bad as Emperor Palpatine the whole time? <sighs> I don't know. This movie really didn't have anything new to say. It wasn't that interesting. However... When it came out, 
It is worth noting that I just checked the Rotten Tomatoes score. While it was critically panned, the Rotten Tomatoes score for the fans is like an 86, which just goes to show when it comes to the Skywalker saga, people for the most part just want you to play the hits. They just want you to play the hits. This is so near and dear to their hearts that if you say anything new about this, it is sacrilege. I didn't think the movie was as bad as critics set it up to be. It was ultimately a pretty good time. The ending was very spectacular and meant to kind of be like a real rah-rah moment for Star Wars fans. I think that some of the explanation of who Ray was and the fact that her and um, Kylo Ren form a force diode, it was just a bunch of exposition that I thought was a bunch of mumbo jumbo that I just didn't really care for. And I, for one, just really never liked the character of Emperor Palpatine all that much. I like his performance, um, Ian McDermott, his performance in um, Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi. I think that that's, those moments are fine. But by the time we got to the prequels for the origin of Anakin Skywalker, I thought his performance was just so comical. And it was something that belonged at like, a renaissance fair at some or something it was something that belonged at like a renaissance fair or something like that it was just it was so over the top and cartoonish the movie did well but it, it did not actually make this was the first of other than solo this movie also underperformed to an extent i think it made money and disney clearly well aware of that could probably sit here at this point and take a look at their performance with movies and be like, you know, this has been a wild ride and ultimately it's hard to deem it a success. If you've only really released two movies that I would think that have been really good so far, it's hard to deem it a success. And you've released so a lot of other movies, The Last Jedi, which people did not like, The Rise of Skywalker, which know a lot of people that didn't like it despite the audience score. The audience score is weird, man. Just like the critic score. I don't look into Rotten Tomatoes too much. It's not that great. And Solo, which is a failure. And Disney are probably like, well, we need to hit the reset button here. They do that by launching Disney Plus and coming out with The Mandalorian, which is a completely new story. It's not Boba Fett, it, but it is a uh, bounty hunter who is a Mandalorian. And the show is a huge success. It has the familiar connective tissue of the Star Wars universe, but it doesn't tell new stories about things that people hold near and dear. Instead, it just brings in completely new characters. And this is the strategy that they probably should have gone with the whole time. I enjoyed the show and both critics and audiences alike watched it. And not only that, it became out with a monocultural phenomenon in Baby Yoda, which was probably sold tons of toys and t-shirts and helped make Disney Plus the streaming service that it needed to be for Disney in general. Since then, Disney has, again, they just can't help themselves, told new stories about characters that we hold near and dear. They came out with a show called The Book of Boba Fett, which I have not watched, but I've heard it's not really that great. And then they came out with an Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which people were probably heavily anticipating, but it... I watched the first episode of it and I was like, why are we doing this? We're bringing in Leia and Luke again, a young Leia and Luke. Stop it. 
Obi-Wan, when he was in exile, I'm sure had a life outside of those people, outside of that family. Stop it. Tell something new. Say something new. And they just can't help themselves. So here we are. We're about to have the release of a brand new show called Andor, which was a character from the movie Rogue One. And kind of the showrunner is Tony Gilroy, who, of course, was the the savior of the movie Rogue One. And reports are is that it's pretty cool and it's really good. I'll have a full review of the first three episodes of the show, which is what they're releasing in a forthcoming podcast. But Disney does not have any movies planned right now. And it clearly they are hitting the reset button. They had a Rogue Squadron movie coming out at one point or planned, which would be helmed by Patty Jenkins, who is the director of Wonder Woman, of the Wonder Woman movies. But that has now been since uh, canceled. So Disney, my advice to you is say something new. Tell new stories. It's a rich and vast universe. Stop making the universe smaller. And you've done all you can for the Skywalker saga. We don't need to talk about those characters anymore. We need to tell new stories and come up with new characters. And you have a lot of money. You have a lot of resources. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with ideas. Ultimately, you've had some highs with your since your acquisition of Lucasfilm. But there has been way more lows than highs so far. All right. Episode four, House of the Dragon. It's called King in the Narrow Sea. And that's a very good tell as to kind of how we transition from the third episode and the aftermath in the fourth episode. Damon is now draping himself in the glory of this battle one and this is now his nickname as King of the Narrow Sea because they had a victory against the Triarchy at the Stepstones in this really pretty intense battle sequence that we've had in the very first one on the show. However, that being said, while I did really enjoy all the events of the third episode because we traveled outside, we had a lot happen, and then we had... Uh, a punctuation mark, an exclamation point at the beginning, and, and an exclamation point at the end. I think this this episode was much more effective in character building and world building and showing the chess pieces moving in the places that they're getting to get that they're getting to. Um, while this episode is called King of the Narrow Sea, it has very little to do with that. It is somewhat of a Damon centric episode. Although I think that they are kind of keeping Damon at a distance so far. Eventually he might be a bigger character, but he's very much on the periphery. And it's just like I said, he's kind of like the Joker effect. He shows up in the places where he needs to, and he steals the scene almost every time. Uh, Credit that to the performance of Matt Smith. This is very much an episode that, does a juxtaposition of what's happening, the role of Alicent Hightower and the role of Rhaenyra uh, Rhaenyra Targaryen. 
who now has the blessing from her father to find someone that she loves. But at the same time, she still has the pressure to find a spouse. That's where the episode begins. We begin where she is essentially on a tour with, it's still not enough on her terms, which I think Rhaenyra is maybe a little bit in the right there. Uh, one thing that I liked about this sequence was that as we're going away, they kind of give it this, again, this is the dark humor that's coming in a little bit. They show this guy who was the cocky guy at first who was courting Rhaenyra, taunting the little kid, and the kid actually like gets a sword blow in on the guy and like cuts him. It's those little attentions to detail that really are, you know, kind of an unsung quality of this show. We then cross the narrow sea. We then uh, go on a little bit of a voyage. You see Damon flying in, and Damon then kind of redeems himself in Viserys's eyes by he has this little crown, but then kind of kneels before the king again, and everything's a bit hunky dory. Much kind of to the chagrin of Rhaenyra. There's even a scene where they're out in a courtyard. There's a, a luncheon or a dinner or something like that. Some kind of festivity. And you can see Viserys, the brothers Viserys and Damon kind of palling around, catching up. There's recollections of things. And Rhaenyra's just looking at it like, Wow. I'll never be able to interact with my father in the way that these two are interacting with each other. And she is perturbed by it. I think when Damon was kind of just in hiding or in exile at Dragonstone, the show wasn't quite, uh, I don't know, it just didn't sing as much. It's more interesting when, when you can see people that have big personalities or very specific character traits or characters that are very well understood from the get-go, and Damon is probably the guy that you can most easily realize who he is from the get-go. To an extent, I think there's more to him, there's more depth, but at least on the surface who he is. And you get to see all these interactions. Then we cut to Rhaenyra in her chambers, and there is like this little map, and then Rhaenyra sneaks out and starts to take things into her own hands. And this is really building on the events of the previous episode where she freed herself from what were the expectations of her, and that was symbolized in her killing the boar and covered in blood and bringing it, the, the boar back to the feast at the camp out. She continues on that, and then she sees Damon in a hood, and they go for a night out on the town. I think that they go to Flea Bottom here, and never before have we really seen uh, King's Landing fleshed out this way. This was actually pretty cool. We see, like, kind of street performers blowing flames and people selling things, and uh, there's a lot going on. It actually seems kind of like a vibrant place. For the most part, we've seen Flea Bottom or King's Landing, other than like the Royal Chambers. We've seen it portrayed as like a pretty awful place at times, just ridden with crime and uh, murderers and thieves and things like that. So this makes it seem like, oh, like we can go out for a night out. It actually might be kind of cool. And then they we go see uh, then they go see a stage play, which is a reflection of the battle for who is the true king, and it kind of 
again, annoys Rhaenyra to see what the public's opinion is of this. <laughs> she boos. This is a nice technique. This is not the first time the world of Game of Thrones has done this. If you remember when Arya was in Bravos, they actually did a play. Uh, she was training under the Faceless Men, but she they actually put on a play about the Clash of the Five Kings and the history of West, the recent history of Westeros. And she saw something and it upset her a great deal. So apparently that's a thing that they like to do in this world where they like to take modern history and put on kind of a semi-satirical humorous play with puppets to make people laugh and give a reflection of current events. Rhaenyra then runs away and the night kind of devolves, if maybe that's the right word into them going to a pleasure house or a brothel. And you could see that Rhaenyra is a bit nervous about it. I'm not sure if this is Damon's planned all along or if this is fully impromptu. But then he says to her, the idea of fornication can be for pleasure, not just for duty. And they have a moment, a very, very intimate moment together. And it looks like Rhaenyra is very much up for that moment. And then Damon takes a look and hesitates and walks away. And it's not fully explained at the time, but I think that this is something that potentially will be paid off later. I hope so. If not, then we're just left to wonder about that. And in my opinion, that wouldn't be very good. But again, I, I think that this is very much a transitional episode. But if you were to do, uh, I'm not typically a fan of those episodes. I think that those episodes are more homework than anything else. This is how you do an episode in transition, though. While that's going on, it kind of sets off a an epiphany in Rhaenyra's mind that, hey, I can pursue my interests Hedonism is a thing just because I am a member of royalty and I have certain royal duties to live up to doesn't mean that I can't do what I want and kind of pursue my interests. So immediately after that happens, she goes back to back to her chamber and Christian Cole, who they kind of had a moment, I think she was crushing on a bit. She does this flirtatious move and kind of somewhat seduces him and they come together in relations. <laughs> this is juxtaposed by Alison Hightower being in her chamber, being awoken in the middle of the night from her sleep and just being called into the King's chamber and then coming to relations with the King in an almost dutiful way. And clearly she is not enjoying this moment at all. She is encouraged to look at him and you see his, body covered with lesions and it's just not clearly this is meant to show the relations between Rhaenyra Targaryen and Christian Cole as something that is like I don't know if it's meant to be portrayed as nice but at least something that's very enjoyable and passionate versus Alicent being something that's very awful and not good this is the centerpiece of the episode here Meanwhile, in the background, another character that I do want to mention here is Otto Hightower. <laughs> you never see him interacting that much with anyone except for when he is in the council room, in the council chamber, offering propositions or kind of whispering in the ear of the king. 
you always see him kind of off in the corner, observing, observing, observing. And is this almost like a guy, What I guess what I'm going to question here, is this like one of the guys that we're supposed to hate? Because he kind of is a little bit annoying. I'm not really sure yet. It, it, it's hard to say. We have a moment then where you see him kind of preparing to offer the king some very bad news. And he takes a deep breath in the corner, mentally preparing himself to do what he's doing, and then comes into the king's chamber and <laughs> kind of gives a word salad and dances around the topic. But then Viserys is just like, speak plainly, just give it, give me what you know. And then says that they were coupling in a brothel, seen coupling in a brothel. And then the king is very much in denial about this the whole time. But Alicent is, Alicent is able to observe this as well. And Alicent confronts Rhaenyra about it. And Rhaenyra flat out denies it and lies to her face. At this point, I think it can be said that the transitional moment for Rha when Rhaenyra learned to truly play the game that they are in this game of chess was when she started stabbing the boar. And that was the transitional, that was the pivot point. Now, if that experience hadn't happened, she would not have done something so brazen as to lie to her former best friend's face about a major event in her life or scandal. This ultimately leads to a really interesting conversation between um, Damon and Viserys. Damon, for whatever reason, decides to just get like blackout drunk on that night that he, on that crazy night out in Flea Bottom, is awoken by um, Miseria, who seems to be looking after him in some strange way, uh, is confronted by Viserys and is kicked around on the floor. Viserys, by the way, still suffering from this disease, but still able to kick and uh, physically attack his brother. This disease is not progressing nearly as fast as we had thought. Damon straight up admits it and confirms it and then asks to wed Rhaenyra. And Viserys just says, ah, well, you only want to do this for your claim to the throne and sends him back to exile in the Vale. We, in turn, get... Finally, one more confrontation. We've had a lot of conversations between Viserys and Rhaenyra. And this is after the Council of Alicent, who tells Viserys that her belief that Rhaenyra is not part of that scandal. And, uh, and she is still a virgin. So Viserys is who probably already was defensive about this, counsels Rhaenyra on it. And in this final conversation between, of the episode at least, this final conversation of the episode between Viserys and Rhaenyra, they finally come to an understanding and Rhaenyra agrees to marry Laenor, Laenor Valerian, who is the son of Corlys Valerian. So Corlys will finally maybe get his day she still has some leverage here and demands that her father get rid of Otto Hightower as his hand. And who, you know, as he 
more or less manipulates the king for his personal ambitions. And that, that, that that's quite apparent as he has come more, as he has kind of pimped his daughter, Allison to the king to gain an upper hand there and very much wants the new son, Aegon to be the heir and not Rhaenyra. So we get this very interesting scene where we get to see Otto Hightower communicate with him in a very professional way, I guess is the word where he recounts Viserys recounts about his father and then says, yeah, this is terrible. And has that as a lead in to more or less firing Otto Hightower. And we're just not used to seeing stuff like this because a lot of times we've seen a lot of characters, particularly in King's Landing in very stable positions for a very long time, minus Tyrion, but someone like Tywin really stayed his hand to the King for a while, for a couple seasons. Maester Pycelle, of course, was the Grand Maester for, gosh, maybe six seasons. We just didn't see that much turnover in King. <laughs> I guess it's, uh, you know, later on in the episodes of Game of Thrones, the uh, employment, the turnover rate was... Uh, was not nearly as high as it is back in the old days. So they managed to stabilize uh, the government workers, <laughs> the cabinet, essentially, of King's Landing. Viserys does this, and this sets up kind of, that's another one, that's another turning point to kind of further divide and increase the amount of this fissure between these two families here, where on one side we have basically Alicent on the, on the other side, we have Rhaenyra and we can start to see pieces of this show become much more clear. What was so good about this episode is that again, it's a transitional episode that we're not focusing. We're not thinking about those chess pieces while we're watching them. We're not like, oh, that's where that's leading. We're just in the moment. At least I was in the moment, enjoying what's happening because it gives us some really big events and some very interesting scenes without really any action either, by the way. This, this episode was mostly slow burn and tense conversations. It is fair to point out that this show is just beginning. And the pace of it is not deliberate at all. Not to say that we should have it be slow or play the long game as Game of Thrones was early on. But this show has the pace of the episodes in the later seasons of Game of Thrones. We're talking six and beyond, maybe even seven, where there is just no scenes that allows you to just kind of take a breath in this world and just soak it all in. Every single minute matters. That's why, to me at least, these episodes fly by. I'm never like tapping my foot or checking my phone. And that's, that's ultimately a good thing. I ultimately think that that is a good thing. But still, I'm not sure what the rush is. This show just began. We could have maybe just one or two scenes where there's a speech. And, you know, I, I think often of a scene where Bran is in bed after falling from the window in season window in season one and he has old Nan read him that story about a couple different stories. He's like, Oh, none of those are really scary. Come on, tell me something else. And then she tells about the long night. 
and how there were spiders that were as large as dogs. And he, he's really scared about it. It, it. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. And while it's not necessary, it does serve the story a little bit because it talks about what's going to come in terms of the long night and the night King and everything, all the terror north of the wall that is arriving. It hints at it. And I'm not sure that we've had anything quite like that. We haven't had just any of these, these scenes that are more explorations of the world than something else. So maybe just, I guess my unsolicited advice to the show is feel free to take a breath and let us just reflect on this big, vast world. Finally, the episode ends with, again, we need a mic drop moment. It is TV with Grand Maester Melos, by the way, great name, Melos, uh, to give Rhaenyra a special tonic, which can prevent any, quote, unwanted complications. So this is a tonic, one would assume, to prevent a potential pregnancy. <laughs> Which just goes to show that Viserys is just... I have an idea of what's going on. I just am focused first and foremost on preserving the peace and preserving furthering the line and all of the royal duty and all of the royal duties above all else. Now, if Rhaenyra was just to take this drink and end of story, and that's that, that would be it. But obviously when we're watching this show, our brains are trained to think, well, there's going to be something more to this. So we shall see how that pans out. Ultimately, I enjoy this episode. I'm still locked in. Is it my favorite one so far? Do I give a ranking now? I honestly think that I would probably order the episodes at this point as four, three, one, two. And that's probably the order I have so far of my favorite episodes. But again, important, I want to say this episode stands on its own. It stands out. And that's hard to do. All, most of the episodes, I'll get to that in a later in a, another installment of Too Much to Watch. But I will talk about how it doesn't stand out as much and it all runs a bit more together when I'm watching The Rings of Power. And that's just not the case when I'm watching House of the Dragon. So we'll check in more on that. Anyway, that is a review slash recap of episode four of House of the Dragon on the next installment of too much to watch we'll talk about episode five i think in addition to that i'll do a check-in on rings of power and uh we'll see how things are going and there's also andor uh out and i'll have to give a review of that as well so there's a lot to talk about there is uh this is a special time in tv there is too much to cover and too much to watch in a small podcast but uh we'll do our best so anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll see you all next time. Take it easy.